Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and John Elledge about Labour's lead in the polls and the possibility of intervention in Iraq. Juliet Jakes, Ian Stebham and I look forward to the Premier League season, and Caroline Crampton and Philip Morn join me to discuss the allure of the proms. by George Eaton, our political editor, and John Elledge, editor of City Metric, to talk about the week in politics. George, first of all, where are we now with uh, the idea of intervention in Iraq to help the Yazidis? Well, it seems increasingly clear that Britain's role will be limited to humanitarian support. And in fact, uh, most of the Yazidis seem to have managed to leave um, Mount Sinjar now. So it's not even clear that the airdrops that were planned, for instance, are going to take place. Uh, it seems clear that Parliament isn't going to be recalled. Um, the government's made it clear that that would only take place were military support being considered. And unlike the US and France, for instance, uh, the UK isn't even going to arm the Kurds. Um, we're, we're going to transport arms to them from Jordan. But um, David Cameron seems surprisingly cautious to move from humanitarian to military support. And that's partly because of what happened with Syria last year. Well, that's a really important point, isn't it? I guess that we... they So they recalled Parliament last year. It came back a couple of days early for the Syria vote, which David Cameron then lost and sort of went, well, I'm taking my bat and my ball away and we won't have another vote on it. That was a surprising incident, wasn't it? Because at the time people were saying, well, in any other case, you'd have expected a prime minister who lost a vote like that to essentially would have been treated like a no-confidence vote. Yeah. But he just picked himself up, brushed it off, said, OK, well, you know, people have spoken and carried on. Did it, in the end, long term, damage his authority or did it merely turn him against the idea of, of intervention? Mm. I, it certainly didn't damage his authority as much as some people expected at the time. But it was an extraordinary event. I think the last time a government had lost a vote on an issue of war and peace had been hundreds of years ago. And you generally don't call votes on issues like that unless you're fairly certain you're going to win. And Cameron thought he was going to win. Um It has made him more cautious of intervention and it's also partly because there's a general election nine months away. Um, you, Linton Crosby certainly would regard uh, foreign uh, endeavours as a distraction from the core message. It would be a barnacle message. on the boat, wouldn't it? Definitely. And it's also made the Tories uh, less trustworthy of Ed Miliband. And they 
believe they argue that Labour made a commitment to support the government as part of a bipartisan approach to Syria. They then went back on that agreement. Uh, Labour denies this was the case. They insist that they hadn't signed up to the government's um, planned action. Uh, but that's that incident is in Cameron's mind and he doesn't feel he can sufficiently trust Labour to call a vote on, on military action in Iraq and win it. And John, this seems to me like this has been the least silly, silly season that I've had for quite some time. I mean, Labour have been pumping out policy announcements. There's been all this foreign affairs news. As somebody who's slightly further removed from than George and I from the Westminster bubble, is there has been how much of, of anything that any of the parties have said this summer has, has made it through to you? Remarkably little, I have to be honest. It's you, it, we, we keep talking in meetings about uh, all the policy announcements coming out, but very few of them are kind of filtering down to my, 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 my cupboard here in the New Statesman office. Um, but I actually think that's largely because of the, the, all the stuff going on in foreign affairs. It's, I mean, it's, it's probably just because I'm, I'm immensely paranoid, but with all this stuff about the July crisis and the 100th anniversary of the breakout of World War I, I'm just finding myself looking endlessly at um, Ukraine and Gaza and, you know, the, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa and expecting something looking remarkably like the end of the world. Um, in that environment, it's quite difficult to kind of concentrate that hard on what Ed Miliband has to say. It is a, a difficult point, though, isn't it, is that we've had to readjust to a time where we saw these kind of things happening and we kind of thought, and what, what should we do about it? And now I've felt sense of feeling very much in Britain is, is a lot more humbled. I don't know if that's your opinion. I... I I actually wonder if it's not just a British problem. It feels to me like one of the sort of side effects of the Iraq war is that the West in general um, has neither the appetite nor the resources, frankly, for, for intervention in the way it once did. And whatever one may have thought about the Iraq war at the time, there were probably worse world situations to be in than having America able to kind of zoom in as, as the world's policeman and sort of deal with some of these crises. And sometimes that, that did go badly, but other times that was actually kind of quite useful at sort of keeping, uh, keeping local crises local. Um, and suddenly that's not an option in the same way. And you know, I, I do wonder whether some of these uh, problems would be would be dealt with at an earlier stage if there was the risk of, of, of Daddy coming home with the world's largest army. It's interesting. I was reading a, a, a profile of Bill Clinton that's, ta that's taken quite recently. I think it was before Hillary decided to run for, for president. But he is in his sort of post-presidential career going to places like Rwanda and saying, I'm sorry, we missed it. You know, we should have intervened earlier. So I think it's really interesting that some of the figures from that era... They're as much tortured by the interventions that they didn't make as by the ones that they did. One of the things that always gets me about the debate around the, the Iraq war is 11 years on, I still don't have a, a settled opinion of it. Because if I you, think that it, makes you extremely rare in Britain. Uh, and indecisive. It makes me extremely indecisive. Um, but you look at history. There are times where we intervened and it was an absolute disaster. And there were times when we didn't intervene. And it's an absolute disaster. And we wonder why our leaders kind of go a bit crazy with the sort of burden of office and sort of need to deal with the foreign policy stuff. Because, you know, any move you make could be the thing that ends up in the history books as a sort of big black mark against your name. Well, there is always, there's, there's always been a theory that this happens to US presidents who get run out of things to do, essentially, get totally gridlocked with all their domestic initiatives in Congress and then start looking around the world itching for, you know, to be the commander in chief so they can stand on an aircraft carrier. And that's definitely not happened with Obama. He's not, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, maybe you can 
I don't know, he's got massively much more in terms of legislation that he's he's trying to push through domestically, but equally well, he hasn't seemed to have filled that time by deciding that it's time you know, for a foreign adventure. Um, if we're going to switch the focus to slightly more micro concerns, George, you wrote your column this week about increasing optimism in Labour, among other things, increasing pessimism among the Tories. There was a Guardian ICM poll that put Labour seven points ahead. They've still, that poll lead is still elsewhere, is, is stubbornly at sort of three or four points. Is the mood beginning to perk up inside Labour? It is. Um, everyone I've spoken to in the party feels they're in a much better position than they were after the local and European elections in May, which were disappointing results for them. They were not good enough for an opposition party that wants to form the government next year. Um, they've got a lot more policy to work with now. It's a case of turning that into a story that resonates with voters, and that's the challenge for the conference. But it's one that they're quite confident of meeting. Uh, I think for the Tories, the concern is that you've now had more than a year and a half of economic recovery. Uh, Cameron's personal ratings have been slightly improving. Miliband's have been going from bad to worse. And yet you still haven't seen the Tories ratings picking up. So Labour's lead has narrowed uh, since last year. Um, but the Tories share has remained largely flat. Um, One of the things I thought was most interesting in your comment I hadn't really thought about is that the widespread belief in the Tory party that even if David Cameron squeaks across the line, he's not going to be there for a full second term. And the fact that's now become quite a a commonplace because that, as you said, turns the idea of the autumn conferences into the the beauty parade for the post-Dave era. Yeah, um, I think Cameron's always been sceptical of serving a full second term because he's seen that a lot of the bad decisions that Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair made, and in Blair's case in Iraq, for instance, come after they've served around seven, eight years in government. Um, By next December, he will have been leader of his party for 10 years, which is a long time by any measure. Um, But but the the view on the Tory side is is that even if he wanted to serve a, a full term, and often prime ministers do in the end find it harder to leave the trappings of office than they thought... Um, it will be very hard for him to do so if it's another punk parliament, that there will be a vote at some point, there will be a test of his authority, there'll be, uh, he could he could campaign for an in-vote in the EU referendum and, and lose, and that would be surely a resignation issue. Uh, there could be, they'll of course have Boris back in the Commons, he will be there as a, a constant uh, alternative prime minister. Um, and it's just very hard to see Cameron's backbenchers sort of allowing him to to get through another five years without uh, without uh, decapitating him at some point. And talking of people who are finding it really hard to leave the trappings of office, um, one of the things that came up on the week in Westminster where they did their review of the year was the idea that everyone thought the Lib Dems would have pulled out of the coalition by now, despite the fact their poll ratings are, by any measure, dr- pretty dreadful. Um, they're looking like they will lose a lot of seats next time round. When do you think that they will leave the coalition? I presume they have to leave some yeah. clear water between them. The view the among most Lib Dems and Tories is that the coalition will go right up to the election so that it will only end once the official general election campaign starts, which is, um, I think, Parliament is dissolved in March. Um, and then you have the short, the short campaign. Um, and you're quite right. I mean, that's not what most people expected in 2010. Um some the pessimists saw that it would collapse very early, divisions over economic policy, Vince Cable would use his nuclear weapon. Others thought, well, they'll, um, they'll sort of come, it will come apart about a year before the election to allow the parties to 
to def more clearly define themselves and to set out differences. Um, in fact, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it has survived and, and Britain, compared to a lot of European countries, is a very stable government. And I think um, when we come to the election, that will come to be seen as one of the achievements of the coalition, certainly by the Lib Dems, that it's proved that coalition government can work. Um, this idea in Britain that only majority governments could be strong, only they had the necessary stability to rule, um, has been, I think, dealt a, a fatal blow by the last um, by the last four years. Well, on that note, I will say thank you very much to George and also to John. Welcome to Football Weekly Podcast. I'm only joking, of course, but unfortunately, Ian Stedman and Juliet Jakes have convinced me once again to let them talk about football as if it matters. Um, I'm looking forward to the start of the Premier League season. That's what it's called, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Are you? <laughs> yes, our, our I am. Season's already started, our season has already started, yeah. yes. I'm a Wolves fan. And I support Norwich City. And um, on TV. Sunday we played each other on TV, no less, the which first is a big deal. Weekend of the Championship season, mm. which for those who don't understand the naming system of the English Football League, <laughs> which is understandable because all three divisions sound like they're the top one now. Um, <laughs> the Championship is this the basically the second tier. Yes. Uh, Norwich were relegated from the Premier League last season and were also promoted from League One, which, which is, is the, the third, third division <laughs> and not the first one. Um, and we played each other, and uh, we won one nil. Wolves. 1-1-0. One, one, I mean, I said earlier, in a wider sense, everybody lost. <laughs> but <you laughs> but lost in a more, more. concrete sense, Norwich <laughs> yes. lost. Uh, yes. and, and it was miserable and awful. So um, this is something I never really kind of understand. I know that there's a big financial burden to falling out of the Premier League. Mm-hmm. How? What's that? I mean, what has been the practical effect of that? Well, well, for Wolves, uh, who suffered consecutive relegations, so they would only three years ago win the Premier League. They went to Championship, then to League One, and now back up to Championship. Um, the, you get these—they're uh, called the parachute payments. So, in solidarity, to kind of um, make sure that there's a soft landing, I guess parachute. Uh, people, uh, teams that get relegated from the Premier League for the first two years, they get something like 16, 18 million. It's a lot more than that now. Is it a lot new more? BT yeah. Sport, I think it's sort of 80 um, million or something. Well, we're still in the old parachute. Insane. Well, yeah, Norwich yeah. get this insane amount of money for being rubbish. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, and th- this does look kind of markedly unfair. And I mean, as with a lot of things in football where the sort of finances sort of, you know, you would think distort the game beyond um, the point where anybody could be interested in it. What rescues football a lot of the time is just sheer human incompetence. Mm. Uh, Norwich have got, you know, these huge pay- parachute payments um, from being relegated last year, but we've just spent it all on absolute tap. <laughs> so, <laughs> we did too. We did. In fact, we've got an entire um, extra 11 of players, players like Jamie O'Hara, um, Roger Johnson, Kevin oh, Doyle. No. Um, these are all players who were crucial to our terrible, terrible Premier League squad. Um, did te- were, we got relegated to the Championship and, and they were still on their Premier League wages. This means £30,000, £40,000 a week for doing very little. Um, and in the Championship, everyone said, oh, but they'll, they'll be good in the Championship because, you know, they're just the, the quality will show through. They were so bad that they're now not even training with the reserves. They, they're called the bomb squad and they've been, we've, uh, they're effectively transfer listed for nothing. And they're, they're soaking up something like 
130, 140,000 pounds a week in wages for doing nothing. And, and that's is, football. And that's... this is why it's absurd that, yeah. you know, you and I have probably just spent the whole of the summer sort of cautiously optimistic about mm. our team's prospects for promotion. Um, and, and then I sort of go to the pub and watch Norwich sort of limp to this sort of tactically <laughs> clueless um just just utterly inept uh you know one nil defeat in a sort of utterly unwatchable game mm. uh and then remember that i support norwich city and like being optimistic about anything <laughs> is is futile. it was one of those like, games that people euphemistically describe as a sort of a, a tactical battle <laughs> to just because it's boring and nothing <laughs> happens but you know you pretend that it's deliberate and they're just negating each other and it's all anyone who didn't enjoy the game just doesn't really understand yeah, exactly. how to read it yeah do you yeah. ever cheekily watch an actually good team like do you have a favorite among teams that are actually good that you sometimes slyly dally on the side um, of norwich or crystal palace with? i i i before they got rich i used to say manchester city were mm. my second team because my my family is very firmly divided between people from manchester and people from wolverhampton um and i support I chose wolves as a kid because they were worse so <laughs> that was more fun supporting the underdog um and but that difference has got a lot larger so i, I don't really enjoy watching man city it's games anymore because it's really too it's really hard yeah. to like any of the sort of top four teams i mean what has happened structurally with the sort of way that um uh, you know, kind of uh, football and sort of well, neoliberalism have intersected. Really, the sort of the the level of wealth that clubs like Chelsea, Manchester City, uh, in particular, because they're owned by these sort of super oligarchs. But even you know, kind of Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, um, just the way the finances break down and the way the Champions League money is distributed, which means that you have a sort of cluster of maybe sort of five or six teams that could hope to qualify for that. Uh, and you know, even like a club like Southampton, who finished eighth. I think eighth in the Premier League last eighth year, or seventh. and they put together a really nice team, and they've just lost the whole team over yeah. the summer because there is impot that's glass ceiling. They've been ransacked. Like they can't go any further. Mm. And even then, I mean, I, I read somewhere that even after Southampton sold kind of five or six star players this summer for huge sums of money, they're still about sixty four million pounds in debt. Yeah. Um, so should there be like a super Premier League that only the top four clubs get? To oh, be? that's well, a, that's a controversial. There's going to be a European yeah. Super League, isn't there? I mean, it is going that way. Yeah, where um, the the kind of consistently big teams, the Manchester United, the Real Madrids, the Bayern Munichs, will have their own supranational EU wide or Europe wide rather. But I know you mentioned neoliberalism because this is the New Statesman podcast, and that <laughs> is the law. But there is an interesting point, isn't it? It mirrors what you see in lots of other places. The idea that the very, very top become increasingly unmoored and anchored and, mm. and yeah. float off. That you, I mean, they have, there is a kind of squeezed middle of football, right? Mm. There's also, um, I mean, the wages thing. Uh, Alan Sugar said this, uh, and he was right, rarely for Alan Sugar, but that um, the, it doesn't matter how much more money you put into football right now. It's All that's going to happen is it's going to get soaked up by wages. And that, mm. and that is especially... <laughs> Um, you see inequality in the real world and it very much happens in football now where the players at the very top of the game earn astronomical sums. But players in like League 1 and League 2, as soon as they retire in their early 30s, they're kind of lost. Yeah, they need to get another job. They dropped out of education at 16 to become trainee footballers. There's been a lot of moves in rugby about that particularly because it's a a really acute problem there because you can not only drop out at 30 but drop out at 30 with pretty serious injuries mm, yeah. and 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 yeah and that and at that point you kind of think well wait a minute what trade am i going to learn at mm. this point so there has been a scheme set up to try and get people into essentially kind of apprenticeships because you're yeah. at 30 that's I mean, the, that's kind of like a social democratic approach to football rather than the liberal where you which, use these yeah. huge money not to pay footballs extra money but yeah. for support networks and stuff glenn hoddle has yes. like an academy in the south of spain um it was after his brother died i think 
think. Yeah, like he's right. named after his brother. brother. 40, wasn't yeah. He? Um, but it's it's basically footballers who released his kids who he takes them to the south of Spain and trains them in choice to sort of give them a second chance. Mm. But there are very rare examples like that. But how much support do you get as a Premier League footballer to make wise financial investments? Because isn't there, didn't Stephen Gerrard and Michael Owen own like half of... Robbie Fowler owns most of Liverpool now, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael Owen has invested heavily in Dubai real estate. Is yeah. that video of him in a helicopter? There's a fantastic video on YouTube of Michael Owen flying in a helicopter over Dubai, uh, talking about how much he loves it. Sounds like the dullest. It thing is ever. the most fantastically dull thing. <laughs> it sounds even more boring than the 15 minute it's, Tony it... Hibbert car fishing video, <laughs> which he gets asked, "What would he do if he got a million pounds?" He says he'd buy loads of carp, and it sounds more boring than that. <laughs> Buy a really big uh, car. Massive one. <laughs> uh, footballers don't get any financial support, I don't think. I mean, no. famously, players like it becomes it becomes this kind of thing that they're known for and part of the fame. Like Mario Balotelli was notorious for just, and there's all these stories of him. There's like, a story of him driving around handing out tennis. Yeah, out yeah. I'd like, be very cautious about what you believe about yeah. Mario Balotelli. Uh, I, 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 I've got a, a relative who claims to be in the know when it right. comes to Man City stuff and he has all kinds of hilarious <laughs> stories about Mario Balotelli going out to the shops and coming back with a ping pong table or something <laughs> like popped out for milk comes back with I think that a one was car. verified yeah so it's um but I think that's not actually that unusual amongst all footballers. It's just Mary Balotelli was like a figure of They funds. went through that phase, didn't they, a couple of years ago of buying massive wall-sized aquariums. That was the thing that all <laughs> footballers had to have. They had to have yeah. like a 17-foot aquarium in their, in their living room as a dividing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, but I guess it must be there must be a whole economy around that of just some businesses that are entirely supported by selling mad shit to footballers, essentially. Yes, um, that I imagine that also to the wags is is that that was I, actually that, we've probably peaked and gone past that now. But there was a period in the last decade where just products were being launched left, right, and centre that had a wag, like a wag theme, a wag tie in, and it was part of that. Whole I think culture. the two thousand six World Cup yeah. did a lot to kill. The sort of more venal aspects of contemporary English football That was when you saw culture. lots of kind of Victoria Beckham and Cheryl Cole. Yeah, and absolutely. Shorts. And you mm. know, I mean, uh, I'm very fond of quoting Jerry Barton, and you know, I try and do it every time I come on the here. Philosopher but, um, Prince, Jerry Barton, yeah, and his you know, they asked him what he thought of all those autobiographies uh, that came out off the back of the 2006 World Cup. You know, the famous Ashley Cole one where he nearly crashed his car because he's only getting paid 50 grand a week, <laughs> and. Um, you know, they said, Joey, what what do you think of these books? And he just said, we lost in the quarterfinals. I played like crap. Here's my book. And yeah, you can't really argue with that. It's sort of a lot of a lot of football culture comes down to that. Um, I mean, talking about wages and sort of players and attitudes and the way it distorts things. I think the most dispiriting football game I've ever been to was Norwich's first game back in. Well, no, one of Norwich's first season back in the Premier League. And towards the end of the season, we played Manchester City at home. And uh, the Argentina striker, Carlos Tevez, who's a phenomenal talent, one of my favourite players to watch, uh, he'd been on strike for six months because he'd been named as a substitute in a Champions League game against Bayern Munich. He was going to be brought on with five minutes left. 
and uh, Carlos Tevez gets paid £200,000 a week mm. to play for Manchester City, and he wouldn't do it. And <laughs> <laughs> so he went on strike for about five months, and you know, City said, we're going to be hardline, he's never playing for us again. Then all the other players that they'd spent £30 million on score goals to them stopped scoring, so they're like, all right, Carlos, like, we think yeah. you come back. And he scores a hat-trick in this game against Norwich, and they win 6-1. And he does this sort of celebration that refers to this sort of strike. And I get all these Manchester City fans, like, yelling at me on the way out of Carrow Road. And I'm like, guys, we had Aaron Wilbraham up front. He used to play for Milton Keynes. Like, <laughs> don't be so proud of yourselves. The only reason you've won this game like this is because you're bankrolled by some, like, mm. Middle Eastern oil uh, oil barons. It's just horrible. Um, it breeds arrogance. That's the, it, that's the real disturbing thing about it, the... The teams that stay at the top all the time, their fans become extremely entitled. <laughs> and you can see that already happened with Manchester City oh, fans. That happened in um, a week. Yeah. Which, I mean, I, I, I guess Liverpool fans are the most notorious for it. Um, there's a fantastic... <laughs> no um, uh, t- there's, a, there's a Liverpool fan forum uh, called RAWK. Red and White Cop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's a Twitter account called RAWK Meltdown, which is just the best quotes from people. Uh, on that, on that I'm going to get in trouble because I'm yeah. on a Liverpool podcast quite a lot. Oh. But, um, it is very funny. It's funny uh, it is. Um, Liverpool people have a notoriously great sense of humour about people being rude about Liverpool. And yes, I can't imagine that anything will no go wrong. I might, I might stop the podcast <laughs> yeah. before Ian gets picketed. The no, I, you know, I, I just, yeah, and you know, so off the back of that, I was almost kind of pleased that Norwich got relegated from the Premier League, and I thought, oh, the Championship's a much more open division. It's much more unpredictable. Um, you know, they're more interesting away trips. It's not as venal. There aren't so many players that I hate. And then you watch like Norwich just kind of lose one nil at Wolves and barely register a shot on goal. And you're just like, actually, no, I've deluded myself. All of this is awful. I don't know why I continue to involve myself <laughs> in it. Well, and we'll be coming back to you for more thoughts on the upcoming Championship and Premier League seasons. Thank you very much, Ian and Julia. Thanks. It's the proms. That's all I know about the proms. So I'm joined by Caroline Crampton, who's going to tell us about the proms, and by Phil Morn, who claims not to know anything about the proms, but says that he does know about music, which is almost the same thing, right, Caroline? Absolutely. Um, Why should we be excited about the proms? Well, firstly, it's one of the biggest music festivals in the world, and it happens in London every night for two and a half months. Oh, so it is actually that long? Because this is, oh, the, yes, this is always the thing for yeah, me. Yeah. Is It's, ni- I think, nine, this year, 92 concerts in 50 de- 58 days or something like that. Um, it's an it is awful astonishing. lot it's, it's like, it's one of those fixtures in the year, a bit like the World Cup, though that's every four years, where you sort of just, you just like the fact that it's on. Like, I really like Radio 3 anyway. I'm just, yeah, I'm, and I'm Radio- coming out here. <laughs> I like Radio 3. It's organised, uh, it's organised and programmed by the BBC. Yeah. It has been for a very, very long time. It, um, every single one is broadcast live on radio, live and free on Radio 3. Um, a lot of them are now filmed and they're on television. They're on BBC 4. Um, famous people fall asleep in the boxes. Famous people fall asleep in the boxes. The best talent of classical music, jazz, world music, now sometimes pop as well. There's a Doctor Who prom, isn't there? There is. There's also a CBeebies prom this year. There was a Warhorse prom. There. Tim Minchin did a prom. Tim Minchin did a prom. The Pet Shop Boys did a prom. There's all kinds of stuff. Wow, this sounds but, more royal variety then. Well, <laughs> but the, the really, prom. really key thing about it is that I think it's the most beautifully democratic socialist thing there is because... Every single concert. Come on, there's there are... people playing violas. No, every single concert. There's a thousand tickets 
that you can buy on the night that are five pounds and you can hear yeah. the best orchestra in the world playing. okay i retract um and it's not viola shaming. playing violas it's just the best musicians in the world who come from all countries and all places and all backgrounds um it occasionally gets political a few years ago there was um uh an Israeli orchestra, I think, had to back out because of pro-Palestinian protests. But most of the time, it steers, steers clear of politics and just goes for the best music. Is it quite a sort of establishment event? I mean, are the things that they're putting that they are putting on, I don't know, kind of feeding into that. This is an English event and blah blah blah. You know, I thought you wrote something about military music and how there's quite a lot of that. That would sort of well, no, be an instant it, turn off for me. I guess. No, 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 they don't. They don't do that at all. That's oh, they the don't? thing. Okay. So, so this year they faced this challenge of it is an English musical institution, sure. mostly because it started in the late 19th century and yeah, sort of it was continued Vaughan off. Williams last night, I think. Exactly, and they do they do do a lot of kind of British composers, but just because of where we are and what what it is. But they also, um, so this year, with First World War anniversary and all that, it's been a bit of a, not a problem, a challenge for them maybe to know, how do we do this without going for the kind of jingoistic red pe- people in red coats playing umpa bands, etc. And what they've done is really interesting because they've chosen, for instance, to feature composers who died in the First World War. So not necessarily who wrote music about it, but people whose careers were cut short. Um, so people who wrote... Um, from all over, I think. From I've all heard over some the world, yeah. German so there's stuff, been some you know. German composers yeah. and some Swiss composers, all this kind of stuff. Um, just people who had their lives cut short by the First World War. They also, then on the other end of the spectrum, if you do want the sort of proper war-related stuff, they did um, some stuff from Warhorse, the West End show. Oh. Did it there? They had. Um, I went to one that I reviewed for the New Statesman. The actual night the exact hundred years since the declaration of war, when the Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, made this very moving remark about the lights are going out all over Europe and we don't know when they'll come back on again. They did a, a prom featuring the music in, of John Taverner, the mm. contemporary choral composer who died last year, who the last thing he wrote before he died was a piece called Requiem Fragments, which was commissioned for this year to celebrate First World War. And it's this kind of Requiem obviously traditionally being the music you sing when somebody dies, but it's this kind of degraded requiem where he's missed bits out and he's incorporated Hindu elements and all this kind of thing to represent that, you know, people died and even the structures we have for remembering them aren't good enough. You know, it was it was a really, really moving event. Mostly I'm thinking we should do a new segment that's called Two Ignorant People Ask One Person Who Knows A Lot yeah. Fatuous Questions I love About it. I love how topic. we've kind of sat down and gone, Caroline, justify the proms. Yeah. As if it's not our failing somehow <laughs> that we don't know anything about Well, what, and, and something I really, really love about it is that unlike concerts that you have at the Festival Hall and uh, Cadogan Hall and, and all this kind of stuff where people do wear bow ties and they turn up, that doesn't happen at the proms. People wear whatever they want all kinds of last night apart from the last night i exempt from this i hate the last night okay Um, because unfortunately um, i think that's a lot of people's that's the thing that's the thing and but more more and more i'm just more i'm impressed every single year how i think they sell out something like 80 percent of the concerts are completely full and the albert hall sits what four thousand people it's a vast number i'm bringing to all of this my terrible traumatic experience of having the only time i went to the royal albert hall was to see handel my my parents really love handel and they said um i was going to see the messiah and all the way through i was waiting for the hallelujah chorus which we all know is very really i mean there's all that we like sheep bit and it goes on <laughs> for so long it is in essence the chorus it's yeah. a bit you can sing along to and i was like it's going to come soon though isn't it like another half hour passes and you think it's going to come soon though isn't it and it's just so long and the seats in the Royal Albert Hall are so uncomfortable in the boxes. 
there's none of that at the proms they don't they very rarely do one whole work in a concert and if they do it's stuff like cole porter's kiss me kate or or they this um this year they've had a special focus on um richard strauss the composer and they they'll do a whole lot of his stuff but mostly it's um the whole point of it is that you'll go, they program it so that you'll go for one work that you know, so Holst's Planets or something like that. And then, but they'll also program around it some other stuff that's like Holst, but you might not have heard of before. So you just kind of gradually... Kind of like, a, if you like this, you may like sort of exactly, Netflix recommendations. Exactly, but it's, it's so BBC, it's so kind of educate and inform and entertain. Yeah. It's so kind of, here's some, here's some music that you already like, here's some music that we think you ought to like. Um, and it's See, so, I like that. They're becoming so afraid of, to do that kind exactly, of thing these and days. That's but, why I like you know, it. so, I'm very at home with the fact that I'm an idiot and I'm quite happy to have them educated. It's me. very sort of gentle and paternalistic. I quite like but it. But that's an interesting point. Do you like going to concerts where you haven't heard the songs before? Because I think that's a fundamental psychology. Some people do and some people don't. Um, I would definitely go to, and to use the blanket term classical, I would definitely go to sort of watch an orchestra where I'd never heard it before. A band, probably not so much. Um, usually the songs you haven't heard when you go to a gig are the ones by the support band and you know you're just waiting for that mm. to end um, or going to the bar yeah, or whatever but, but similarly with, with classical I mean you don't you don't listen to I mean yeah everyone has sort of phrases and sections and things that they like yours obviously the hallelujah from the <laughs> from the messiah but, but wasn't that it was more that that was the bit that that was like that was like the sort of play us one we know where yeah. we, where tell us just... a joke we know <laughs> like I, I love in in hearing new music i remember very much the first time i ever heard um stravinsky's right of spring mm. and just being absolutely blown away by this music i had no idea that i could you know i did not go and see classical music when i was i was and that's quite modern i know but when i when i was a young fella and i went to see this while i was at university and was blown away and kind of half of half of what i what i enjoy is the fact that there'll be this this passage or this movement or something that really really kind of affects me but then i've forgotten how it went when i let when I, you know there's something about being in the moment the first thing i remember noticed the first time I ever saw an orchestra was how many people in the audience had their eyes closed and this is not mm. because they were asleep this is because they were really involved with the music and that impressed me a lot yeah it's um it was very interesting i think the one i went to on tuesday night which uh, was Sibelius's Fifth Symphony and Walton's Violin Concerto, both quite famous pieces that get played a lot on the radio. And the violinist who performed the Violin Concerto, he played it brilliantly. And he got sort of five calls back to the stage. Everybody was applauding so much. Mm. And then he came back on the sixth time and he, he went, started, oh, you milked it now. No, he started tuning his violin again. Everyone was going, like, this isn't on the programme. What's, what's he going to do? And he, he played, um, and the orchestra had already gone up, so it was just him on he his played, own. It smells like teen spirit. It, no, he played on the violin. A, um, a very slow movement from a Bach sonata, which was, and it was amazing to have like 4,000 people all kind of like lean in to hear him. And it's so sort of slow and beautiful and melodic and very, and it's the kind of piece where it's got lots of chords and you just can't believe all those melodies are coming out of one instrument from mm. one person. And the kind of silence you get around when he finishes, when everyone's just, what is it? But I love it. I can't, I can't not hear this. It's amazing. And that, that doesn't exist. That's a unique experience that only exists in the problems, I think. That's interesting. I always think that I would probably, I, it brings out my sort of auto-philistine because I think, and I think that's probably a reaction to the fact that I think you get a huge amount more enjoyment from classical music because your level of understanding of it is just so mm. much higher. And it's like, anything if you understand the illusions and the oh that's a very different way to play this passage you know it's often when you actually I went through a 
random phase of there's a great blog post of all the people singing um what's a Ness and Dormer all the different ways you can do that and you think there's the classic Pavarotti way and then there's the way that people originally sang it in the 30s you, know, you do different things with the last note and when you get to that level of understanding it just must make the whole experience so much richer because I, I wonder almost I sort of get slightly because my level of understanding is so low that I, I, I there's a tendency for me to get bored Whereas if you had lots of knowledge to compare it to. I think that there is one way, that is definitely one way of enjoying it. But one reason I'm so attached to the proms is because it's how my parents first in- introduced me to classical music because it was how they could afford to take mm. up, take me to concerts. And I didn't realise, for instance, for a decade at least, that it, the reason that I only ever went with one of my parents, they took it in turns, was because they could only afford two tickets at a time. Um, and... There was always, they'd always try and tell me a little bit beforehand. So we're going to, the planets was the favourite one. We mm. tried to go to that every year. And they tried to explain to me that this one is about Neptune, this one is about Jupiter, this this is why they're different. And they ran out of um, planets because they didn't discover those planets. Because they, they weren't any more <laughs> planets at that point, apparently. But, um, so they... Um, it's good that we didn't do Pluto because you'd have had to, have to undo, undo it. it. But so they'd ex- sort of try and give me a little bit of context. But often they wouldn't know the other stuff in the programme. So we just sit and listen. And sometimes when you're eight years old, you do get bored. But sometimes, as Phil said, something kind of grabs you and then you want to know about that and you go and find out. So kind of being bored kind of led me to find more out, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, you know, and there's a certain... There's a, a particular, people who like music are capable of bluster in a way that no one else can can match i mean musicians actually i think musicians are especially good at this and i've you know i think it's big in a good part of my appreciation of classical music to the degree that i have one um has been assuming that that doesn't matter and that everybody is capable of getting a you know getting an equal amount out of out of listening to music mm. and it's not necessarily the same things that they're thinking about or whatever but the experience is just as valid and just as complex and just as interesting you know whether you know a kind of great deal about it or not I think it's great when you are spurred on to go on kind yeah. of read about it and when you come back to it next time you know when I go see Stravinsky the next time I've now read all about you know the reaction that that got in Paris when it was debuted and all this kind of thing but like I didn't know that at the beginning I just simply thought listen to these rhythms I just did not think an orchestra could do this and it's such a happy thing to um one of the concerts I've been to at the proms this year um had a piece by a composer who's still alive although he's I think now 80 Peter Maxwell Davies it was from a, a ballet he ate one of the queen's swans yes yes he did he's an amazing guy that's he, all I know um, about him he um he wrote a ballet about um Caroline Matilda the sister of George III who went to go marry a Danish king and had a disastrous affair and ended up dying in a German castle. It's a very sort of tragic story. Great film on that. Great film. Yeah. A Royal Affair, a Royal I think Affair. it's called. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he was written music for a ballet about it back in the 90s. And I never heard this, never heard of this. They played a suite from the ballet. And it was just the sort of darkest and most depressing music I think I've ever heard, but but brilliant. And so, and when it finishes, you're kind of like, what was that, Rosa? And then... He's there, the composer is there, and they bring him on the stage and he shakes hands with the conductor and the entire audience is sort of rapturously applauding the guy who made the music as well as the people who played it. And that that is brilliant. That that's is... interesting because that's a sense of kind of, of, of one-offness, which yeah. is kind of something that you lose maybe for all the convenience and comfort of watching something at home. You lose out on this idea that you've been through a kind of an experience yeah. together. I thought what you were saying, Phil, was really interesting because this is a concept that comes up again and again. It's the kind of experience hump that you have to get over, the idea that there's a barrier to these things. So talking about it with relation to classical music is interesting. The same thing exactly happens about video games. Right. Um, 
because you sort of for a lot of console games for example you can't just if you're completely never played one before pick one up and play one now really they're so complicated the control schemes you know you would assume that how you look around the room and stuff like that is all things that people who've played games for the last 10 years will just feel intuitively but you can't and actually i feel exactly the same thing about exercise is that they think that most people feel that there's a gulf between exercise people who are people who do exercise and non-exercise people right. and people almost feel that there's a kind of once you're assigned into one of those categories, that's it. You're you're one or the other for the rest of your life. And the same way that people, I think, feel really strongly there are video game players and non-video game players. And it's something that's really sad because it means that you end up closing yourself off from a lot of experiences because you almost don't want to embarrass yourself. Yeah, because you don't have the vocabulary, you don't have the experience, the kind of... Uh can't sort of fit into it so well it is a great shame and i think it's entirely artificial um i don't think that that necessarily need to be a, a dichotomy you know splitting people this up is why i have a kind of missionary zeal particularly about the proms because i feel like it's if you don't know much about classical music and you've always felt like you're not a classical music mm. person this is the place to start kind of thing because it's deliberately designed to be approachable but it's hard to show that level of vulnerability as an adult i think that's the point Mm. is that you at school you have to do and try Mm. new things but it can be so easy to kind of kind of calcify into like this is the kind of person i am and these are the things that i like and 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 lots of culture that builds up is can be really exclusionary it can be really kind of like the whole i mean in computer games you talk about the idea of someone being a noob like oh you know, you only you don't know about the Bandai Crystal Wonder Swan, the you know the import only Japanese consoles of the nineteen eighties and nineties, and and that's how I kind of how I feel about. But well, you've shamed me. What you've done is you prom shamed me. <laughs> Shall we go to the proms, Helen? I think we should. Right. Yeah, Can we start off go. with a, like a Pet Shop Boy prom? Would be amazing, obviously. But I don't think I'm ready for Holst just yet. Or yeah, well, worse, this is the whole thing is that they have they have all of these things. There was a I think the, this year they did a sport prom. They did no. music that was about sports, no, 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 no. hosted by Gabby Logan. <laughs> again again. And they did the this... old cricket theme, you know, the old um, with the with the steel drums was amazing. I would definitely get <laughs> that. That one, the kind of, yeah, really lively. That's like the sound of my childhood. My dad trying to listen to that on radio for a long way in the car. On which nostalgic note, I'll say thank you very much to you, Caroline and Phil. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn.